Welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. And first up, uh, we'll get a chance to talk to Carson Block. He's from the Internet 2. And uh, we'll talk about the toolkit called Toward Gigabit Libraries. And then we'll be joined by Jennifer Lynch and Kevin O'Brien to talk about the recent award they got from NOAA Sea Grant to fund pilot projects to look at removing marine debris. So we'll get to that shortly. But now I want to welcome Carson Block uh, from the Internet 2. And I want to welcome him to the show. He's going to talk about the Gigabit Libraries Toolkit. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe, Carson. Thank you so much, Bert. It's so good to be with you and to be in Hawaii. It's so, of course, so beautiful, and it's just been so wonderful to work with so many people uh, across the state to improve uh, broadband technology, like, everywhere. Well, <laughs> as much as we can. So, just so that our listeners know, I mean, I guess I could have had Carson call in from wherever, you know, he is on the continent, but... Uh, he is visiting Hawaii and making several stops to various libraries and and institutions and sharing about the toolkit. So, but first off, uh, Carson, maybe maybe you can share a little bit about what exactly is Internet Two. I mean, I've heard about it, and perhaps many people on the show have uh, heard about it. But uh, maybe explain what does Internet Two do? Yeah, so Internet Two was founded way back in the day, uh, back when the internet was first started. Um, there were, um, uh, uh, you know, issues with capacity and speed. And uh, research institutions, you know, big universities, mm-hmm. um, really wanted to be connected so that they could experiment with higher-speed applications of Internet. So that's how Internet 2 was started as, as, you know, really thinking about the next generation of Internet. Now, the way things actually grew, of course, is that Internet 1, which is what we're all on, it grew pretty fast and it's still growing. Um, so uh, Internet 2 still stays true to its mission of connecting um, 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 uh, different folks, uh, including research institutions, uh, as a, an option for high-speed networking. And when you talk about Internet 2, and I, I recall the days when, you know, uh, Internet 1 and, and the, I guess, the growing visibility of Internet 2, but at that point in time, you know, a lot of the big uh, pipes in, in uh, connecting institutions were probably 45 meg, you know, the typical DS3 type of uh, connection. And Internet 2 was all about connecting these institutions via gigabit, right? And so, that's, that's, but that's right. are, 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 we, are we there already? Aren't, aren't, aren't a lot of the institutions now connecting at multi-gigabit speeds? Yes, they are, and they uh, and it keeps growing and growing. <laughs> it's, it's just like um, 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 the the old you know the Billy Idol song you know where he says more more more. Um, that is our um, demand for high speed um, uh, connections because we have so much things that we are doing on our connections that the capacity is growing into um, uh, into huge huge capacity and it's so important so Carson when when the institutions now are connected via gigabit does it did it did it uh, um, make obsolete the the mission of what internet 2 was or did did internet 2 in essence kind of pivot and look at at new kinds of advancements that they could connect institutions to yes so absolutely yeah absolutely did not in fact it's so important to have different types of 
um, of backbone broadband connections, and that's the type of connections that Internet 2 um, is made of, are, are, are what are called the backbone, the core. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because there's just so much, um, everybody, literally everyone um, uh, who is able to connect and who has that, that ability to connect to the Internet, they're using more and more. So we need different types of networks. We need commercial networks. Those are very important. Those are like our commercial providers. But we also need government networks and we need private networks. Um, so that we uh, we don't flood them with things that we're not trying to do or that all that other traffic gets in the way of, of work that we're trying to do or advancements or studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very important. Well, and as, you know, as uh, as our listeners uh, are pretty, pretty familiar with the fact that, you know, we've been talking about broadband. We've got the uh, federal government supporting a lot of broadband infrastructure deployment in the form of, of funding. And so maybe, uh, Carson, what what brings you to Hawaii? What, why now? Well, we, um, it's, really, it's really funny. The, um, the, these are unprecedented times in terms of federal dollars that are available to improve broadband and lots of work around that, especially um, uh, the work that you're involved in, Bert, and, and, and so instrumental in. Um, but before this, we uh, saw that there was a problem in specifically in libraries that were small, like in rural areas or in tribal areas, where um, the, the, the networks that are supposed to serve like Wi-Fi and access to people all over America were not working very well because they were challenged inside and nobody knew how to fix the things like inside the building, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there, there's the, what they call like the last mile of connectivity, for instance, and, and trying to make sure everyone's connected. But not, but very few or no one was paying attention to what was happening inside the building. And there's lots of obsolete equipment. There's equipment that's not configured correctly. And there's some things that are just plain broken that mm-hmm. need attention. And so um, this toolkit came from an IMLS grant. And IMLS stands for the Institute of Museum and Library Services. It's a, a federal uh, agency that provides grants uh, for improvements. And this grant funded this towards Gigabit Libraries Toolkit that helps anyone, and you don't have to just be a library, um, anyone to be able to self-diagnose challenges that they're having with those networks and then fix those challenges. So even if, uh, you know, you were at home, you're setting up your Wi-Fi network, you may have uh, a cable modem or or a modem that is uh, connected to a couple of devices, and you, you wanted to maybe learn a little bit more. I mean, this toolkit is available to homeowners as well as, uh, you know, larger institutions like a library. <laughs> that is right. When we first started teaching it to library, like library staff, especially in small libraries, they, we would run through things that would get very excited because they finally understood all those mysterious things that they didn't understand before. And then they said, can we use this at home? <laughs> and we said, yes, you absolutely can because it's written for a layperson. So even though the, tech, the, the technology and the technical information is accurate and uh, powerful, it is not written in a technical way so that anyone um, uh, who can uh, read uh, English and understand English is able to, to look at this and to understand uh, their, their network and how their, their stuff's working just as you provide or just as you uh, uh, described. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, I've seen the toolkit. I think it's a great great uh, a resource. It's, it's uh, Creative Commons. We can actually uh, sort of reuse it and, and um, 
even some of the ideas that we had today was maybe uh, uh, make an addition that's uh, Olelo uh, Hawaii. So we're going to be looking yep. at doing that. And so, Carson, where can people find this resource and download it? The, it's, it's available on the Internet2 website at Internet2, that's the number two, internet2.edu forward slash T-G-L. Very good. Mahalo, Carson, for joining us. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for the warm, uh, warm welcome and time. Thank you. And, of course, we'll be back right after this short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Jennifer Lynch and Kevin O'Brien to talk about the recent NOAA funding uh, to actually look at these prototype marine debris removal projects. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bert Lum, and I want to welcome to the show Jennifer Lynch, Ph.D., co-director over at the Hawaii Pacific University Center for Marine Debris Research, and Kevin O'Brien. He's the president and founder of Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Debris Project. And they're both here to talk about a recent NOAA Sea Grant Award. I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Bert. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. And, and you know, I do want to um, <clears throat> have you both tell me a little bit about your respective organizations. And and I, I want to give uh, a chance to Jennifer to maybe start off. And I know you have... Uh, uh, a very close involvement with the federal government, and maybe you can share a little bit of what you do there as well. Absolutely, yes. Um, so uh, I am a federal employee with uh, NIST, which is National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, we develop uh, the best methods to measure anything, um, and measuring plastic pollution in the ocean is not an easy feat. So Mm -hmm. we're working very hard towards that. And my federal agency, along with Hawaii Pacific University, formed and established the Center for Marine Debris Research in Waimanalo in 2019. Okay. And and, uh, uh, tell me, Kevin, about what your organization does. I mean, is it, uh, I I know you're a nonprofit. uh, And so how did you decide that, you know, a nonprofit was a right, right sort of, uh, organizational formation to to tackle this this uh, challenge. Sure. So our our organization is called the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris Project, or PMDP, and we sort of have a niche mission statement, and that is to conduct large scale cleanups, specifically of the uninhabited islands and atolls of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, mm-hmm. which is now the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. So the cleanups up there in those uh, Remote Hawaiian Islands used to be done by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration under the federal umbrella. However, we realized that creating another mechanism that had a little more flexibility in terms of how we fundraise for the project and how we engage with the community was going to be a great thing for making the project sustainable in the long term. So we went ahead and uh, and jumped ship from NOAA in 2019 and created the nonprofit to do these uh, these large scale cleanups. So, so Kevin, you know, with uh, the formation of a nonprofit and, and, and maybe coming from NOAA, I would, I would venture to guess that would you have the same amount of resources and the kinds of perhaps, uh, you know, equipment and systems at your disposal 
but as a nonprofit, are you trying to start all of that from scratch, or are you able to get funding to perhaps use the you know the uh, uh, systems that NOAA has? Yeah, it's been a, a real collaborative effort, and it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. We've actually found that we have more opportunities for funding now that we're a nonprofit and can take advantage of granting programs that we couldn't as a federal agency. But at the same time, we wanted to run all these cleanups independently if we needed to of, you know, federal help and assets. And so um, the first couple projects we ran as a nonprofit were heavily collaborative with NOAA and the other co-managing agencies of the National Monument. And it was a really wonderful way to get this project off the ground. Um, But as of 2022 and now into 2023, we're fully spooled up to be running these large-scale cleanups um, fully independently, but obviously with a lot of collaboration and then federal support, as uh, as you might imagine, based on the uh, the topic for today's talk. Yeah, so I I do want to have you both talk a bit, a bit about the uh, the project itself, and and Jennifer, uh, yours is called what Nets to Roads. Uh, describe what it is that you do with respect to not only the the project itself, but uh, what is the what is the unique value proposition that that uh, your project sort of brings to the table. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So um, Kevin and many organizations here along the whole Hawaiian archipelago have been removing tonnage of plastic pollution, um, marine debris out of the ocean, and we've really not had a way to repurpose that debris Mm -hmm. at a large tonnage scale. Mm -hmm. And I was approached by the Hawaii Department of Transportation a couple of years ago, about the idea of recycling plastic waste into our asphalt roads here in the islands. And um, I've learned a lot about asphalt that I didn't know anything about before that. (laughs) And um, yeah, the idea is to use recycling or mechanical recycling of the plastic materials out of the marine debris, convert them into small pellets that then can be added into the road for a long-term repurposing, recycling for public infrastructure. So now you got me thinking, I mean, did this innovation come out of an ideation that the Department of Transportation had? (laughs) If you didn't know about it, how did they know about it? Right. Um, Actually, it's been done. uh, Over 200 roads have been paved with used plastic already. And it's not that the road is all plastic, by the way. Mm -hmm, It's like mm -hmm. point. 0.5% 0.5% of the pavement is the used plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because so many roads are paved and it's quite a large thing, that adds up to a lot of tonnage. Uh, but no, they had heard about this idea from other places. There's more than 200 roads across the world that have been paved like this. Well, 200 out of the entire world doesn't seem like a whole, I mean, that's not a whole lot. So uh, they were really kind of looking at at your organization to perhaps look at the 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 process that might enable uh, debris that's pulled out of the oceans around uh, you know around the uh, uh, the islands and and is the is the reprocessing of that plastic located here in Hawaii? It is not yet. Oh, okay. um, so they brought us in first and foremost because we were very well connected to the removal organizations and mm-hmm. we were also removing marine debris um we removed 18 metric tons in partnership with kevin and others to study the sources of where this fishing gear is coming from 
so um, they had heard about us that way. So we were more on the front end providing the marine debris to them. Uh, the biggest bottleneck is that there's no conversion facility in the Hawaiian Islands as of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing pilot scale, um, nothing large scale, industrial scale. So we can't shred and extrude the material into the pellets here yet. We're hopeful that a facility can be built through um, the collaboration with HDOT so that we have that facility set up here so that we can do it um, at a bigger scale. And they also brought us in because we study microplastics. And one of the things people are very concerned about uh, when you start messing with pavement, there's two things. They're concerned about potholes. We want our roads to last a long time, right? And they're concerned about unintentional environmental consequences like microplastic particles leaching out of that road and into our coastal and near shore um, water systems. And so we can measure microplastics. So they asked us to test the asphalt with the plastic in it to see if it's leaching those bad actors into the environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about the the, the opportunity to perhaps uh, establish a conversion facility here in Hawaii, but I also want to give uh, Kevin a chance to talk about something that they call the development of new cutting new cutting and lifting technologies. So, Kevin, uh, before we get to that, I, I, um, I do want to hear about uh, you know, what exactly your technology is and, and the value proposition there, but I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Jennifer Lynch and Kevin O'Brien, and we're talking about Marine debris removal, which is a very, very important topic. And, of course, this is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jennifer Lynch, Ph.D., co-director at the Hawaii Pacific University Center for Marine Debris Research, and Kevin O'Brien, president and founder of Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Debris Project. And uh, we're together here talking about, you know, the their pilot projects for uh, marine debris removal. And, and of course, right before the break, uh, I wanted to give Kevin a chance to talk about, you know, what their project uh, in, consists of, and, and they call it Development of New Cutting and Lifting Technologies. So, Kevin, I mean, it sounds like I've seen some of those pictures and, you know, you're hauling all this stuff out of the ocean and it's huge. It's got just a big, huge mass of junk, you know, and is your technology like how to, how to like break it down to something that's more manageable and movable? Yeah, that's, that's basically it. So, you know, when people think of a marine debris cleanup, they usually just think of uh, a beach cleanup, people walking the beach mm-hmm, and collecting mm-hmm. plastics. But our organization... Um, focuses almost entirely on these ghost nets or derelict fishing nets mm-hmm. that wash in and snag on the reef. And so within Papahanaumokuakea, there's 70% of all the coral reefs that are that are uh, found in the U.S. And so there's a, a massive area of shallow reef systems within the northwestern Hawaiian Islands there. And so this is just a magnet for these big ghost nets that snag on the reef. And so for us, the, the, this part of this amazing funding opportunity being an innovation grant is um, is two things. Like we 
find ourselves with a big bottleneck in terms of efficiency with our cleanups. So for one, it's very expensive to be in Papahanaumokuakea. We have to take a 180-foot ship up there. It takes us four to five days to get to our cleanup locations. And so every hour we spend on site doing the cleanups is very valuable Mm -hmm. and costs us a decent amount of money. And so we look at where we spend our time, and it is simply in the time it takes to cut these huge bundles of net into smaller, more manageable pieces, like you said. Mm -hmm. And so for us, um, that is also paired then with having to get those those big bundles of net into a boat. Mm-hmm. And so for, you know, for this innovation grant, we're really excited to be able to spend resources for the first time on developing new tools where instead of taking potentially um, hours to cut through a huge, uh, you know, three-ton bundle of net, it may take us minutes. Or um, developing a new uh, way of lifting these out of the water and into the boats that cuts down the time, again, from hours to minutes and allows us to really boost our efficiency and, you know, really just how much it costs per pound to do these big cleanups. So we're really excited to just improve the whole process all around. So the cutting the cutting of these big, huge bundles, uh, where does that typically take place? What's the most efficient place to have that happen? I mean, you, it doesn't make sense to have it put it on the, you know, you go out to um, – the the whole you know marine reserve and you're you're gathering up all these nets and and you've got it on the ship and do you have to what bring it back all the way to Hawaii uh, you know or the you know the 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 main islands I mean do you does it make sense to have that cutting capability on the ship itself? It does, and even beyond that, um, have it available to our our divers in the water. You know? ah. So all our marine debris removal is done by a team of free divers. Mm-hmm. We don't use any scuba. We hold our breath. And so all of this cutting actually happens underwater. First, to very carefully cut the net free from the living coral. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, to cut that net into, into smaller chunks. And so having these technologies available on every one of our boats um, for the divers to use in the water before they even pull the debris out of the water is going to be super valuable. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, in terms of just... Uh, just I'm trying to imagine what type of cutting tool do you use? I mean, it's not like a, a little saw or anything. I mean, what is there some special technology that you use underwater? Currently, the the best thing that we've found without developing our own tool is actually just a simple folding uh, serrated dive knife. Ah, I see. Stainless dive knife. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, you can imagine trying to cut through a three-ton bundle of net that might be, you know, six feet across with a small serrated knife. And so there's a lot of room for improvement in that process for us. Well, and you're already making me lose my breath, <laughs> thinking I'm, I'm holding my <laughs> breath and now cutting a you know a big swath of of, of uh, underwater net. So that's that's a, that's yeah. I think there's a lot of innovation uh, uh, in that particular project. Now, Jennifer, you mentioned um, these conversion systems, and and you kind of mentioned that uh, there's not there's not one here in Hawaii. And and my my, I guess what I'm thinking is. From a from a scaling standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, what's it take? What's it take to have one in Hawaii, and is that something that needs to be, you know, like you need funding from the legislature? I mean, what where do you see the next phase of establishing that kind of facility here in Hawaii? Right. Well, it's a it's a facility that is needed critically. Um, Kevin brings back fifty tons each mission, mm-hmm. and there's n- no place store that for recycling. So really, our 
cheapest, easiest option is to send it to Next Energy, which is the H Power, mm-hmm. um, and just and burn it, right? It to yeah, electricity. Yeah. So that is one repurposing way, um, but it's not the best for greenhouse gas emissions or other environmental impacts. And so having a mechanical recycling facility here is super important. How we're going to make that happen is uh, still a little bit of um, jury is out. Uh, We are talking to many of different organizations um, because the Sea Grant funding really is funding only the beginning phases of the whole process to repurpose plastics um, into other things. We have to detect the marine debris. We have to remove it, and then you have to transport it. Mm-hmm. And right now our neighbor islands, three organizations on the neighbor islands will be supported by this grant that HPU is getting. We're supporting Hawaii Wildlife Fund, Sharkastics, and the work, awesome work done by Surfrider Kauai. Uh, together they remove about 100 tons a year from the shorelines here in the main Hawaiian islands. Yet on our neighbor islands, the waste management system is not as sophisticated as Oahu's. Mm -hmm. And so really they only have landfill option and transporting it in our island can be expensive. This grant is going to offer the funding to transport it here to Oahu to a centralized storage facility. And hopefully that facility will be a conversion facility as well. Okay, so that's what you envision the $5.1 million going toward is to defray uh, the, the, the expense of bringing it to Oahu. But then the timing for that conversion system has to be uh, be able to meet that, that influx of, of, you know, this debris. So timing-wise, wh- when do you see that happening? You said uh, maybe, what, a couple, three years down the road? I'm hoping sooner, but um, I can't predict the future on that. Uh, we're working with a lot of different partners to try to figure out um, who's going to fund, um, manage, and uh, use that conversion facility. Mm-hmm. So hang tight. Okay. A lot of discussions to happen over the next few weeks. <laughs> and, and Kevin, uh, what part does the award play in your pilot project? Uh, the award, uh, you know, we're, we're part of this um, pilot project with, uh, with Jen, uh, you know, supplying net for for the Nets to Roads project. And so we're sort of a supplier, you know, and so we have our own innovation grant then to be able to, you know, maximize our removal efforts. And so hopefully that's a double-edged sword. You know, we remove more debris from the environment, which gives the wildlife there a better chance of survival. And we can also help supply, um, you know, some of these pilot projects for what we do with this waste. And so um, for us, it's an exciting R&D campaign, not only developing cutting tools, but also developing new um, uh, ways of detecting the debris on the reef, new survey techniques, and some technologies we can use to help us detect uh, the debris using uh, drones and underwater uh, dive propulsion vehicles, and also developing some creative inflatable infrastructure to be able to raise the biggest and heaviest nets from the bottom using inflatable containment devices, which we can then use to tow these things back to the ship. So for us, it's uh, it's a start-to-finish um, opportunity with Sea Grant here, and we're really looking forward to um, partnering with our friends at the UH Sea uh, Grant College Program, who partnered with us on this this grant to really, you know, well, take this 
this whole process starts to finish. So, so uh, Kevin, I mean, is there a place that we could point people to to find out more information? Maybe the Sea Grant uh, website? Yeah, they can visit seagrant.noaa.gov. Uh, they can visit our website at www.pmdphawaii.org. Sounds good. Uh, and then, uh, Jennifer. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and put that uh, up on our show notes for later. Jennifer Lynch, PhD, co-director, Hawaii Pacific uh, University Center for Marine Debris Research. And Kevin O'Brien, president, founder of Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Debris Project. I want to thank them both for joining us today. And, of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about uh, some smart egg, uh, smart egg systems uh, that uh, some of the students are getting involved in. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find a podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. Our engineers, David Chong, can catch us on HBR on every Wednesday or anytime via the HBR app or your favorite podcast application. You stay safe. You stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.